That is a military coup. And so Elisha doesn't go himself into the land. Why? Because everybody knows Elisha, presumably. And immediately the army might go, wait a minute, Elisha, flask of oil, Commander Jehu, I see what's happening here. This is a military coup. And so Elisha sends the youth intern onto uh, Ramoth Gilead to go and anoint Jehu. And he takes him into the tent and he anoints him and tells him all that's going to happen. And he tells him, not only do you have to take down Joram, but you need to burn down all the house of Ahab. That's your charge. That's what you're supposed to do. And so he anoints Jehu uh, to cut off the house of Ahab. And that includes Ahab's former wife in, when he was living, or his widow, uh, Jezebel, who is still alive and still is sort of playing uh, puppet master to one degree or another. And so he's got to do all of that. And so Jehu first sets out to kill, I don't know what the two is up there, but where are we at? Click on the little slide in that next screen. There we go. Got it. All right. So Jehu uh, goes, first of all, to kill Joram. And the way he does it is he approaches the city where, of Jezreel where Joram is. And he knows that he can't just take his little small battalion into the castle. But what's also an advantage for Jehu is that the king, who is injured and recovering, wants to know what the news is on the battlefront. So here comes his commander riding up. Or all he knows at the time is a group of soldiers coming up. And so he says, well, send out a, a parade out there to go ask him, a little scout out there to ask him what's going on so we can have news from the front, from the front lines. And Jehu, when the messenger gets out there, says, you know, shut up, get behind me. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not telling you, basically. And so they, they're like, well, I don't know what gives. He's, he went out there to talk to him, and now he's not coming back. Well, send out another one. So they send out another one. And Jehu says, shut up and get behind me. And so the guy gets behind him. And so he's like, I don't know who it is, but it's obviously Jehu that's coming up here. And so the king decides that he is going to go out uh, and, and, and meet Jehu, his commander. Which turns out to be a fatal mistake. Now, as providence would have it, Ahaziah, the king of Judah, is also there. Now, Ahaziah, king of Judah, is the nephew of Ahab. So they're part of the same family. And what is Jehu's charge? Burn it all down. Bring it all down. So, as fortune would have it, not only is Joram out there, but Ahaziah also goes out there to Jehu. And as soon as Joram gets out there, he asks him, what's the news from the front line? And, and Jehu says... Oh, you, you, want, you want peace? Is that what you want? When you have Jezebel, your mom, who is wreaking all kinds of havoc and killed the prophets. And immediately at that point, Joram realizes, oh no, it's a trap. Turn around, run, Ahaziah, it's a trap. He turns around to flee and Jehu shoots him with an arrow right between the shoulders, kills him. Then Jehu uh, uh, goes after Ahaziah and his men track down Ahaziah. Ahaziah also dies, so he has killed both kings of both the north and the south in basically one fell swoop. Now, word gets to Jezebel, who is his next target. Go ahead and click on that little thing, because I think, yeah, there we go. Oh, wait. Jehu goes to Jezebel, who is also in Jezreel. That is his next target. She knows he's coming. 
and she knows the ship is about to go down. And as a good captain always does, dresses in her fatigues, gets her makeup on and fixes her hair and all of this because she knows she's about to go down with the ship. When he approaches, she yells out the window. She calls him a, some, a, a name of another traitor, uh, quote unquote traitor that happened years ago and re- relating to Zimri and, and who also was a commander who also overthrew the king in, in Israel. And uh, so Jehu doesn't even respond to her. He just calls out up to the top of the tower, who's with me? And a couple of eunuchs stick their head out and raise their hand, we're with you. And he says, will you just throw her down? And so they pitch her right out the window and she just hits the ground. Uh, Once she hits the ground, obviously it makes such a a noise, it startles the horses, the horses trample her to death right there in the middle of everybody. And it fulfills prophecy. Why? Because they celebrate the death of Jezebel. And while they're celebrating the death of Jezebel, dogs come and devour her body. All that's left are the soles of her feet and the palms of her hands. All right. Gruesome story, right? It gets a little bit more gruesome too, (laughs) because uh, Jehu is not done. His job is is not over yet. And so we're going now into chapter 10, where before we turn, chapter 11, which will be uh, next week, is going to turn to the south and talk about what happens with Judah. But for now, we're in the northern kingdom, and we want to understand how Jehu is going to sort all these things out. And so chapter 10 of 2 Kings is dealing with what Jehu does next and how he's going to go about carrying out the plans of the Lord. Now, there is a, a question, I think, in our minds. Just how much is he going to burn down the nation? Just how much is the Lord, through Jehu, going to burn down the nation? I mean, at some point, when you're talking about people who have bowed the knee to Baal, every single one of them are going to die. Well, doesn't it raise the question, who's going to be left at the end? I mean, Israel is... Is Israel, as we've seen, they have they have all bought in hook, line, and sinker to worship of Baal. Their kings have led them that way, and they've gone that way. They've followed after them. And so at the end of judgment, coming to the house of Israel, who is going to be left? And as we're going to see, it is not that many people. So the events of 2 Kings chapter 9, which was last week, are but the beginnings of judgment that God is bringing to the house of Ahab and to the nation of Israel. So remember, Elijah prophesied that the descendants of Ahab would be cut off every last male. Look at 1 Kings 21, 21. It says, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. So we know that it comes as little surprise in view of that, that, um, that Jehu is, is not content with just the deaths of Jezebel and the king of the north and his nephew, the king of the south. And so he is going to go after Ahab's family completely. Look at 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. Now, Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, a whole lot of sons. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, 
to the elders and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with your, you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him over his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him, as uh, uh, Joram and Ahaziah. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu saying, We are your servants and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter saying, if you are on my side and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons who were with great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him in Jezreel. When the messenger came, to him, came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning, until the morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel all his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left none remaining. All right. So the first ones that have to be dealt with in this scene are obviously the 70 sons. Now, remember, that is general enough to mean male members of, 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 a, of a household, kinsfolk. So it could be even maybe a, a little bit distant. Maybe a nephew slides in there or two. That would be fine. That doesn't have to, the term doesn't have to mean exclusively uh, sons directly sired by him. It could also be grandsons and maybe even further down the line too. So uh, that's probably how we get to the number 70 um, unless, hey, I guess it could happen. Um, so, but, but, uh, but, but it's general enough that it could be a lot of people. So if you're thinking, man, 70 sons, how does one person have that many children? Uh, when all we ever read about is really Jezebel, his wife, um, and, and obviously that'd be too much for her, I think. Um, you know, that's probably how we get there. Uh, but he says, to, he says to them, look, if you want Ahab's house, if you want his throne, then put together your best men and come fight for it. Now, is this an appealing offer <laughs> to them? Um, not really, because you know, you don't get YouTube videos of this stuff happening right? You don't get Jehu coming up and you don't see the YouTube video of how it actually took place. All you know is that Jehu walked into the castle like Jason Bourne and just took down the whole household of both kings, right? And that would be a pretty terrific feat. And so by this point, obviously, 
word has spread uh, back to them that Jehu has come in and he has killed two kings. He's killed the king of the north and the king of the south, who are the most guarded people in all the nation. How could that possibly happen? Well, it's got to happen one of two ways. Either Jehu is that bad that he could go in and kill both kings, or he has that much support that there's no sense in fighting, right? If you have that much support, then the military is with you. You've killed everybody so far. There's no sense in us fighting because we're going to lose our lives too. Now, who does Jehu send this letter to? He doesn't send it to the 70 sons. He actually sends it to the leading citizens, the elders, the, the, the important men who are with the sons, um, telling them this is what you should do, the, uh, is, is put together your, your challengers. These are the people, the, the uh, what, how should we say, entourage around the, the sons, the princes, right? These are the people that follow around, perhaps leech on, but also have tons of power. And Jehu writes to them and says, you need to do this. And of course, they respond and they say, uh, there's no way that we're going to do that. We are your servants. So how is Jehu going to kill 70 sons, 70 princes? That would be more than Jehu could probably muster in a single skirmish. So what does he do? He has the power brokers around him <laughs> kill them. If you're my servants, he says, then prove it. And so when they get the letter in return, the, re- the reply email, uh, well, if, you're gonna, if, you, if that's really the case, if you really are my servants, then I want you to cut off the heads of all the sons and bring them to me. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. He wants them to murder uh, these people, and he wants them to deliver their heads to Jezreel. Now, do you notice what it says happens in 6? Look at 6, so 10 uh, verse 6. Then he wrote to them a second letter saying, If you are on my side and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. They do that, but what do they do? In verse 7, and as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons, they slaughtered them, 70 persons, and they put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. Do you notice a difference in what was commanded versus what was done? Why is that? We're not sure. It still may be a trap. You still may be after us. So they shrewdly decide, we'll kill the sons and we'll send them to you in baskets and then... Uh, and then we'll let you work that out. We're going to stay here at a distance just, just in case. So they're still pretty scared of Jehu. And I might say quite smartly, uh, send the heads on in the baskets. And of course, Jehu then stands in front of all the people and says, I did this. This is on me, these heads or this, the, the killing, the burning down of the palace. And you see that the important men that were around the princes were the ones that slaughtered these guys. So what does that tell you about the power, power structure being switched in Israel? It tells all the people, Jehu is king. There's no question. Okay, so now, obviously, Jehu has his work cut out for him because he doesn't just have the, the uh, area in Jezreel. He's now got to go to the rest of Samaria. So, no, that's too far. All right, there we go. He's got to go to the rest of Samaria. And on the way, he meets some relatives of Ahaziah. Now, 
I mean, how stupid do you have to be <laughs> if you're in the South? I mean, they just seem to keep getting themselves in this predicament. Now, you could read the Old Testament and you could see it as a whole bunch of fortuitous events that just seem to fall into the lap of Jehu, who is appointed to be the judge of the northern kingdom. Or you could see this as God working in history to ordain these events to come. I prefer to see it that way, because that seems to be what's going on. It is not just the north that Jehu is actually going to bring down to its knees in, to some degree. It is the south as well. And so he meets on the way some relatives of Ahaziah who claim to be on the way to greet. Who are they there to greet? Families in Samaria that have just been wiped out. And so what do you think Jehu is going to do with them? Let's look at 2 Kings 10, verses 12 to 17. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Beth Aked, some of the shepherds, uh, a Bethiket of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he said, who are you? And they answered, we're relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. Not good people to visit at this point, right? Their names are kind of mud in the area. And so he said, take them alive. <laughs> and they... <laughs> Uh, and they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Bethaked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab. We'll, we'll come to him in just, just one second. I'll finish this in just one second. So they, on the way, he meets these relatives, and they're, they're there. Uh, obviously, they have not gotten word. Maybe email or internet doesn't work in that area, and they have not heard what Jehu has been doing. And so they're there, and they foolishly just tell him, what are they there to do? Well, you know, the son's princes are, are uh, or the, the king's princes are, are some of our friends and our relatives. And we're also here to see Jezebel. Uh, yeah, obviously not good people to visit in that time. And so without any, uh, you know, qualms or anything like that, Jehu takes them alive and has them slaughtered. Now, where is Samaria? Do you remember what Samaria is? What is Samaria? Anybody, anybody, anybody going once? Going twice? capital of the northern kingdom samaria capital of the north just remember that put that in your head samaria capital of the north what was samaria it's the capital of the north yeah but what was the capital of the north it was samaria it works both ways you know uh so uh so he is on his way to the capital city which obviously is the going to be the center of some cultish worship the cities have always been the ones that go first um so he's on his way he meets these people he has them killed and then uh further he meets a man by the name of jonadab of uh jahanadab uh the son of Rechab. and so i want to read this little piece of it um at it starting in verse 15 when he departed from there he met jahanadab the son of Rechab, uh coming to meet him and he greeted him and said to him, is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and Jehu took him up and with him into the chariot. 
And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride, uh, he, he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. All right. So uh, on his way, he meets Jonadab of Rechab. Now, when you read this, this is why some, I, 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 I recommend frequently the Bibles with the little cross-references can often be very helpful, uh, especially when it comes to people and situations that you, you just can't explain or is very difficult to explain. Because perhaps if you were at this point, I, I didn't go back and check my ESV to see if they make the cross-reference here, but does anybody have a Bible open with cross-references? I don't know if you happen to. And see if it, if it cross-references Jeremiah 35. I'll go ahead and take a look at that. It's in your verse packet there. Uh, but somebody that has a Bible, if you want to look at that in 2 Kings, what is that? 2 Kings 12, when it gets to Jehonadab in, uh, was that 15? I believe it is. 12, 15, the name of Jehonadab. See if it, it references Jeremiah 35 for you. Um, but listen to this in Jeremiah 35, uh, 1 to, well, let's, let's, let's look specifically at 5. Um, Jeremiah has taken this group of, of sort of uh, zealots or people that are uh, very, very religious, very pious group of people. And in verse 5, he says, Then I set before the Rechavites uh, pitchers, full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, same guy. Uh, our father commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard, you, but you shall live in tents all your days that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. Uh, we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us to drink no wine all our day. So basically what we see in Jeremiah 35 is that there's this group that is the, are the sons of this same guy that Jehu meets on the way. And uh, Jonadab or, Je or Jehonadab, as it is in First King, Second Kings, uh, the son of Rechab is obviously the founder of this sort of sect of religious purists. They're a group of people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So when we ask the question, who, who is going to be left? And you see this repeated refrain throughout Second Kings 10, and he killed all that remained and all that remained. And all that remained. And then he's going into the capital city and he's going to kill all that remained. And we're going to see something in a minute that is crazy. And, and killing a whole bunch more people. He's going on a killing spree. And you'll remember, as we're going to talk about in just a second, he's the second line of defense, of judgment from the Lord. Hazel of Damascus is going to be the first. And whoever escapes him, then Jehu's going to kill. So, and then after that, we've still got the prophet Elisha who is also going to do his measure of bringing the judgment of God. So when you see all of that and all that remains and all that remains and all that remains and all that remains, who's left? Well, it turns out there's a friend, Jehonadab, 
who was prepared to be a founder of a set of religious purists who would not even drink wine. Very akin to what we see in the New Testament of like John the Baptist. He grows his hair long. He eats locusts and honey and wears a, a belt of camel hair and a garment of, I could be wrong there, belt, belt of something and camel hair. And anyway, burlap sack basically is what he's wearing. And, and a lot of times we come to that description and we think, what, why is that that he is like that? Well, frequently what we find in the Old Testament and, the, and even sometimes in the New, obviously with John the Baptist, is that when you get the, the nation turning to idolatry and wickedness, what you also find in there is a group of people who are very weird to the culture. And they stick out like a sore thumb. And here's John the Baptist standing up in the middle of all these religious zealots, if you were, who want to take back the land from the Romans and who care really only about political power. John the Baptist refuses all of that and comes out wearing a burlap sack and, and eating locusts and honey, and he looks very strange. And he's preaching repentance from sin and baptizing people, which is not something that the Jews normally do. So the point is that in the midst of wicked nations, in the midst of idolatry, in the midst of all kinds of pagan abuses of God's word, he, he preserves a, usually a small, always a small group of people who will not bow the knee to the God of the culture, but instead stand against it. And in the midst of that standing against it, look very, very strange. So here is this Jehonadab of Rechab. He is part of this purist religious group. And so um, they go on, they together go on to Samaria, which is the epicenter of the Baal cult worship. And um, John, uh, uh, Jehu has already told Jehonadab, look, you want to see religious zealousness? You want to see how much zeal I have for the Lord? Come with me. You'll see some zeal. So Jehonadab gets up in the chariot and they ride to see the zeal of Jehu. And uh, what follows is, is very interesting. Um, now, remember that this is the epicenter of Baal worship. We see that in 1 Kings 16, 32 to 33. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So what is Jehu going to do when he gets down there? One of the most shrewd moves that you'll ever see in Scripture. Jehu, in 2 Kings 10, starting in verse 18, then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Uh-oh, I smell another. It's a trap. I keep thinking of Admiral Akbar in Star Wars. You know, you know that scene? It's a trap. All right. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did, did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal 
came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to, them, said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal, so we can mark them. <laughs> uh, so he brought out all the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you but only the worshipers of Baal. At some point, you'd think they would smell the trap, but they just don't. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, the man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he made uh, as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Now that is a very shrewd move indeed. So he goes in and he tells them, let's gather together. Let's make an assembly. Let's worship all. You've not seen the kind of worship of all like you're going to see through my kingship. So come on out. Ahab served him just a little. Believe me, this is going to be awesome. So they're starting to gain a little confidence. They realize Jehu's going to be on our side. Great. So they gather in the temple. And this is Jehu's way of just bringing down the whole temple on top of it, burning it all to the ground and making it a porta potty um, afterwards. <laughs> Quite literally. I'm, I'm, I don't think my clicker's on. Something. There we go. So uh, Jehu goes through and deals with the, the cult there in um, in Samaria. Now he's decisively dealt with the Baal worship, and yet, as it turns out, he still doesn't follow after the Lord. That's strange, isn't it? It sounds like Jehu has a kind of zeal that you would be admirable, that you would want, and that would be uh, he's doing what the Lord uh, desires, and he's he's killing all the the worshipers of Baal and, and judging the, the nation. But look at what it says in 10, 29 to 31. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sons of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what was right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the, of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Um, it's sort of a tragic part of the story, isn't it? You, you see Jehu with all this zeal, it seems, for the Lord, and yet, he doesn't get rid of the golden calves. Now, remember what the golden calves were set up for? Do you remember what this? They were originally set up uh, by Jeroboam in Bethel and in Dan. Bethel 
is on the border, close to the border of Israel and Judah. So close to the border from Israel, uh, north, northern kingdom and southern, southern kingdom. And then Dan is far up north. And both of these have been pagan centers of worship for, for a long time. Jeroboam set up golden calves there to keep people from going down into Jerusalem and worshiping the Lord there. And isn't that the problem? That's the problem. That's the problem the Lord's had with Israel since its inception, is that Jeroboam made Israel to sin by not allowing them to go down into Jerusalem and worship him in his house in the temple. Jeroboam prevented that kind of worship. And so here is Jehu, who has a terrible vengeance uh, against Ahab's house, and in all the ways Ahab made them sin, by not just erecting the high places where the golden calves were worshipped, but then also set up cult worship of Baal all the way throughout the land. He had a vengeance against Ahab for doing that, but didn't have the same kind of zeal to reach far enough to destroy the high places. Remember why those places were set up? They prevented the people from going down to Jerusalem for sure, but why did he want to prevent the people from going down to Jerusalem? They might stay. They might realize the southern kingdom's got it figured out. I mean, of course they do. And, and so they, they go down there, they worship, they realize this is where God is. This is where we need to be. The king loses his people. When the king starts counting his people, they're not his people. That's a problem, right? So it, it's, what's interesting to me about this is that he's got all of these works for the Lord that the Lord even commends. You did all this, but one thing I have against you, right? Does this language sound familiar? I phrase it that way. It's not phrased that way in Second Kings, but the language is familiar to us from Revelation, right? All of the churches are established, seven churches, and Jesus goes into those seven churches, which is a whole other part of the story to begin with. For one, Jesus is calling out specific local church bodies in Revelation. You realize that? The church at Ephesus. Yeah. The church at Ephesus, he calls out, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Jesus is active enough with his eyes to see into a local church in Ephesus and Thyatira and Pergamum and Philadelphia and Sardis and Laodicea and call out all of the sins that are there. In some cases, even recognizing certain people that are in the congregation. You tolerate this person. Oh, and by the way, Jezebel comes up in one of those churches, doesn't she? Tolerating idolatrous practices. What's interesting about that connection to Revelation is that he sees it all, for one. He sees into the local church. And he demands worship in total, not in part. For all that Jehu is, is, is commended for, he's condemned because his worship is not in total. It's in part. We can do all the things that we want for the Lord, but he demands all of us, not part of us. Um, so, he doesn't destroy the golden calves. All right. Now, the prophetic word to Elijah told the reader to expect that Jehu would deal with those who had escaped 
Hazael. What does that actually mean then? That means that Hazael is the most fiercest of the group who's going to judge all of them. And then whoever escapes him, Jehu's going to take care of the leftovers. And then whoever escapes him, uh, Elisha is going to take care of everyone after that. And so through Hazael, the Lord began to, well, through both of them, actually, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel, conquering uh, the Transjordan as far south as the Arnon Gorge, which I'm going to show you a map in just a minute, uh, the southern limit of Israelite territory. So we see that in 1032 to 36. In those days, the Lord began to gut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of the Gilead, the Gadites, and the, the Reubenites, and the Massites, and the Termites, and the Parasites, and all the ites, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is, in, that is Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And, and Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. All right. So this is the area from as far north as Damascus. There's Hazael of Damascus right up here in Aram, all the way down to the Valley of Arnon, which is the southern border of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. Jerusalem sits so close to the border. I mean, right on the border, practically, of the north and south. So Jerusalem is right here, and just north of that goes the, the territory of the northern kingdom. And this is all out here on the, in what they call the Transjordan. It's all the area just outside, just to the east of the Jordan River. Um, so with a joint effort, Hazael and Jehu, um, their concern, uh, uh, so, oh, sorry, uh, they join together, they, they destroy uh, all those who have bowed the knee to Baal um, throughout the land. And again, there is this concern, as we read several times over and over again in verse 11, in chapter 10, verse 11, verse 14, verse 17, and verse 21, how all of them are going to be struck down so that none remain. He spared none of them in verse 14. Uh, he left none of them remaining in verse 11, in verse 17, uh, till he had wiped them out. So on and on and on it goes, telling us that uh, he's going to take care of every single one of them until none remain. And it brings the question, who is there to remain? Well, then we get to go back to the prophecy in 1 King 19, verse 18. He says, yet, this is the Lord telling Elijah this, yet I will leave. 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what is God promising? He's promising a remnant. I think I know. No. He does this still to this day. Wicked nation after wicked nation will rise up they will squash out Christianity. They will persecute it to death. And yet still under the cover of darkness, there will be a remnant of the church remaining. He has always, always, always done this. But remember, when that prophecy occurs in 1 Kings, 
when Elijah is at his most desperate moment. Everyone is against me. I'm the only one out here like me. No, 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 no. I've still got a remnant. I've still got 7,000. That the Lord, he tells him, I have kept for me. These are the ones that have not bowed the knee to Baal. This is a great picture of the body of Christ in the New Testament. This is precisely what it is. Just as we talked about um, the strange people that the Lord keeps for himself, this group of people that against the backdrop of wickedness, they shine like stars. Paul actually refers to the church that way in the New Testament. Here's a backdrop of wickedness, and against them, you shine like stars. That may be Peter, now that I'm thinking about it. I got in the back of my head that it's Peter for some reason. I I can't remember. But the point is, against the backdrop of wickedness, the church shines like stars because they're supposed to stand apart from the culture. They're supposed to be the ones that are strange, that are weird, that don't watch all the things that the rest of the world watches. They aren't culturally really with it. There should be, honestly, a lot of times where your pagan friends ask you, you've seen that show, right? It's filled with gratuitous nudity and violence and cursing, and you say, I have no idea what you're talking about. But forgive me, I know in my own life, and I know often in the lives of a lot of people that I talk to, I'm not condemning and I'm not pointing the finger, I'm pointing the finger back at myself, okay? Often we, we kind of do know, don't we? We follow pretty closely a lot of the working of the, of the culture. And we've bought into that lie of cultural relevance is the most important thing that we could do. You know what we could do? You know what would help your church to grow? You know what would be the best church growth strategy is if you try to appeal to the culture in every single way. you know what? People just can't pay attention in church anymore. So your sermons, come on, man. 20, 25 minutes tops. You got to give them some movie clips and some slides that just really pop off the screen. Nah, don't wear your suits and your stuff like that. Wear something else. You know, Wear some affliction t-shirts and be cool. Get the pulpit out of there. Put a cafe table in there. Conversation, that's what we want. We want a conversation. We need the music to be super hip. Get to the application immediately. Spend so much time in the Bible. It works. You know that? It works. Be busting at the seams in your church. What have you given up? A lot of people don't really think about this. The, The church's worship service goes all the way back in the Old Testament. You realize that? From the moment the Israelites gathered around the base of the mountain of Sinai, 
the first time they heard the word of God. And what did they say? He's going to kill us. We can't hear this. Moses, go up there and hear it for us and tell us what he said. When the church gathers around the word on Sunday morning, we're hearing the word of God spoken to his people. But the best part about it is because of Jesus, you're not afraid of dying. They were. You're not. What we do on Sunday morning, when we sing the word, when we pray the word, when we preach the word, the reason that we do that is because it's the word of God that actually changes the people. It's not the pastor. It's not catchy sermons. It's not hip transitions and all those kinds of things. It's not electric guitars and stuff. There's nothing wrong inherently with instruments. I like all the instruments in the, that you could possibly put up there. It's great. But it's the word of God that actually changes people's lives. That's why we gather around it. That's why we read it. That's why we take it seriously. That's why, by the way, we preach expositionally. You know that? That's why we go through the text. Why, why, I, why me or Jeremy or Tom or whoever preaches up here goes line by line through the text of Scripture. My words don't change you. They have no power to change you. You need to understand what is said in the Word. You need to understand how that applies. My job is just to give you the sense of what God has already said. But that's the reason we preach exposition. So much of what passes today is simply just application after application. Here's 10 ways to improve your marriage. We'll give one verse here, one verse here, one verse here, all over the text. And all of it is just to support what I'm telling you. It's all wisdom from the pastor's mind. It's the word of God that actually changes people's lives. And that's what we need to stick to. That's what he does. He preserves his remnant. He causes them to stand outside of the culture. Not any pastor, not anybody with slick words of wisdom. So, Hazael, we know, is not going to be the one who is going to uproot Israel for good. That's going to be Assyria who's going to come much later on. In fact, God tells them that in 1 Kings 14, 15, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and the root of Israel out of this good land that he, he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. That is still to come. That will be at the end of 2 Kings. We will see the hauling off of um, both kings, actually. So, questions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's so good that... Uh, uh, for those listening at home, Vicky said, uh, it makes, makes me wonder how, how God tolerates me. And uh, well, the best part about that is he doesn't tolerate you. He, he, he loves you. You know, it's good. Go ahead, James. Yep.
Right. Uh, James said uh, the the word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and and there's lots of people that give counsel or are attracted to various other things, but they never say what the word of God says. And especially in the pulpit, <laughs> happens a lot. Uh, I think we wonder sometimes, you know, why why especially the American church is, seems so weak and and fickle often, and unwilling to just stand up in the culture and and but you know often what passes in the in the pulpit i I'll, I'll say this too you you can have um a sermon that is quote unquote boring uh that ha that is somewhat dry but is from the word and actually tells you what the word actually says and applies and you may struggle to stay awake and you may struggle to keep your attention on it you know what? Listening to that preaching will change you. And that preaching, while it may be difficult to remain awake during it, I, I, I can promise you that will have more of a spiritual nourishing effect on you than anything you'll find at, at churches that, that don't do that. Just Just... I don't recommend you ever listening to a Joel Osteen sermon or prosperity gospel preaching sermon, but if you ever do happen to fall across one, all right, pay attention to how the word is used. Just watch. There's not a passage that's going to be opened that you're going to walk through and you're going to see what Matthew's intention or what Paul's intention or what whomever the author is, what his intention was to communicate to the audience that he's writing to. You're not going to hear that. You're going to hear, this is what you need right now where you are. Here's the scripture that backs that up. This is what you need. Pathetic. It makes for fickle Christians. Because it's not the actual word of God. You're listening to the counseling of what's between one guy's ears. I am frequent. Pastor should be surprised some weeks when he gets to study. He should be, have his mind changed from time to time. He goes in frequently, happens to me, go in with one opinion and read the word, start studying it and go, I was totally off. That's not where he went at all. He should, but you'll find often that with many pastors that preach that way, if you want to call them that, um, it's uh, just supporting his own conclusion. dangerous. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, what if I agreed with you? Would that really shock you? Uh, see, uh, J uh, Bob's point was, Jehu ran the race, didn't take down the golden calves. This is a repeated refrain throughout the Bible. And then at the end, because he didn't finish all the, the objectives laid before him, he was condemned. And so I know that I'm going to leave some things on the table when I get done with life 
And so it's, is it better to not just to just not get up off the couch than to go? And the beauty of this is that that's precisely what we do. The word tells us over and over, your righteousness is filthy rags. The reason that the race is won is because of Christ. His righteousness has supplied 100% of all the action I will need to inherit eternal life. 100%. So I'm going to leave things on the table. I'm going to leave things undone. I'm, I'm not going to be able to get to everything. I'm going to have sins that I did not confess, maybe because I didn't know them, or maybe because I knew them and I was stubborn. And yet, at the same time, Christ has supplied all the righteousness that I will ever need. <laughs> I didn't answer. I'll commence to preach and go ahead. <laughs> Why is it we as Christians see a person who is advancing the kingdom and the moment we see a flaw, see a flaw crucify him? Yeah, shoot our wounded, as Richard said, yeah. Because um, we're sinful. I mean, uh, the people that are shooting the wounded are also wounded. So, you know, I think... Honestly, it would just serve us really well to just have a lot of grace. You know? uh, Rich Mullins has the, the song, and, and he, he, the opening line is, uh, let, or opening line of the chorus is, let mercy lead, let it be the strength of your hand. Um, it's a great line. It's true for all of us. Um, so yeah, good. Let's, let's end there, and we'll reconvene next week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could spend together. Thank you for the study of your word. We thank you that your word actually does the work. Um, we pray that it would continue to do so here at Emmanuel, that it would do so at the churches of Tuscaloosa, that in every church there would be a doubling down, a recommitment, desire to preach the word and hand the body of Christ over to your word we know that that's what changes the hearts and minds of your people. We pray that through it, you would strengthen the churches in the city. Together, we would be those weird people who stand out amongst the crowd and differentiate ourselves from them, but also minister to them and live a, a life that compels people to the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.